Hello, readers. My name is Jason Jeffries, and this is Bookin, brought to you by Quail Ridge Books, Raleigh, North Carolina's trusted independent bookstore. My guest today is New York Times bestselling author Alan Gratz, author of several award-winning and acclaimed books for young readers, including Refugee, Grenade, a project one zero six five. Is that how I should yeah, say it? Yeah. Right, Prisoner B three zero eight seven and Code of Honor. His new book is Allies, published by our friends at Scholastic Press. Alan, thank you for joining me. Thanks. I'm glad to be here. Yeah, it's an honor to have you here. Um Alan, this book Allies opens up on June sixth, nineteen forty four, just before dawn on the English Channel. Can you set the scene for our listeners? Yeah, sure. So it's uh, it's nineteen forty four. It is late in World War II. Uh, Europe is largely ruled by Nazi Germany. Uh, Germany has advanced all the way to the border of France and Spain. Spain is neutral. They uh, occupy, the, you know, Italy was an Axis country, but the Allies are fighting in southern Italy, but we haven't gotten much farther than central Italy. Uh, the Balkan states, Greece, everything is taken over by, uh, by Nazi Germany. Scandinavia is ruled by Nazi Germany. Only England sits across the English Channel as this bastion of, of freedom. And then meanwhile, the Soviets are fighting the Nazis in the east, and there's this long grueling front over there and the Russians are really being beaten down and the Nazis are making advances and it's essential in this moment that we form a western front like that we take some of the pressure off the Soviet Union and that we get some ground troops in western Europe and force the Nazis to start fighting the war on two fronts the English and the Americans were bombing they were doing daily and nightly bombing runs over Germany and over German held positions but that wasn't enough. And there was a French resistance, and that wasn't enough. We needed to get a toehold in Europe. And we knew this. And so for over a year, the Allies were planning, where can we invade in France? Where can we try to push our way in? The problem was Germany knew it too. And they had lined the whole uh, French coast with bunkers and pillboxes that had machine guns and had mortars and cannons. And they were like, we know you're coming. Come on. We're, we, we dare you. We think we can beat you, and we can push you back into the sea. Uh, and so this is what the world looked like, like on June 5th, 1944, like the day before D-Day, essentially. And, um, and then on June 6th, 1944, really beginning at midnight, not just at, like at dawn is when those soldiers hit the beach, that famous scene that we've seen in Saving Private Ryan and the longest day where the big flat bottom boats, the doors flop down and the soldiers rush the beach. But it really started way earlier than that, like around midnight with all the different things that were going on. But but that's where we start. That's where we start with, with Europe really being occupied by Nazi Germany and, and the Allies needing to form a Western Front. Thank you so much, Alan. And um, why is it important to tell this story about D-Day to young readers? So I think that there are a lot of young readers who are really interested in history and they they get some of that in, in school. They get some of that in class. But I'll, I'll tell you, when I was a kid, we always planned to get all the way through World War II in our history class, and we never made it. Like, I can't remember a single history class where at the end of the year we actually made it all the way through World War II. Things just happen. You know, the, the, the school year takes its time to get where it's going. And then you get kind of close. Maybe you get to World War One. Maybe you don't even make it that far. And you're like, well, we'll do World War II next year. And I think a lot of times World War II kind of gets missed for that reason. Uh, maybe there's a Holocaust unit, and a lot of schools are making sure to put stuff like that in, where they talk about one particular part of World War II. But I think a lot of 
of that, the details of World War II are not covered in school because of the, just the time element. Um, why should we study World War II in general? Um, you know, there, we fought a lot of wars uh, in the world and as the United States. And some of those wars have been pretty obvious and clear reasons. You know, the, the American Revolution got us our independence. The Civil War, uh, you know, freed slaves and, 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 and unified a country as one uh, nation without slavery. Um, so there are some wars that are pretty clear, but then there are other wars that were really like, what was the, the war, you know, uh, of 1812 really about? And, and what was the, the Korean War or, the, or World War I, for that matter, or Vietnam? They, we fought these wars, but the reasons behind them are a little bit more murky. The, the goals that we had were murkier. The, the results were murkier. Um, and it, those, are, those are definitely worth discussing, and, but it's harder to write a book uh, set in one of those time periods because you're talking a lot more about the larger, the confusing interpolitical, like international political stuff. Whereas World War II, uh, there was pretty clear bad guy. The Nazis were super evil. And the more I read about them and the more I research them to write more and more books about World War II, it just gets worse and worse and worse and worse. And I think that that kids should continue to study World War II and talk about it because we're, we're even today seeing a rise in neo-Nazis and we're seeing people return to nativist kind of feelings and like we don't, we don't want uh, other people, whoever we are, you know, whoever that we is, we don't want somebody who doesn't look like us or think like us to be in our country. And that's where Nazi Germany started. You know, like that's, that's what, the, well, Nazi Germany is, is what happened when that spiraled out of control. And I think always looking back and saying, look, this is a worst case scenario for what happens when you start to think like that. So maybe let's not think like that in the future. Maybe let's cut that off before it gets to the point where we all have to get together as a, as a world to stop one country from, from, you know, like trying to take over the world and, and, and subjugate us with its racist views. Thank you so much. And listeners, we are going to take a break for a word from our sponsors, and then I will be right back with Alan Gratz. The Book and Podcast is sponsored by Libro FM Audiobooks. Libro FM lets you purchase audiobooks directly from your favorite local bookstore, Quail Ridge Books. You can pick from more than 100,000 audiobooks, including New York Times bestsellers and recommendations from booksellers around the country. With Libro.fm, you'll get the same audiobooks at the same price as the largest audiobook company out there. You know the name. But you'll be part of a much different story, one that supports community. Listeners of Bookin' can get a three-month audiobook membership for the price of one. Go to Libro.fm, that's L-I-B-R-O dot F-M, and enter Bookin', B-O-O-K-I-N, in the promo code space. With each listen, take pride in knowing that you're supporting local bookstores. I'm back with Alan Gratz, author of Allies, published by our friends at Scholastic Press. I want to talk to you for a moment about baseball, Ah, yeah, a subject that we may return to later in sure. the interview, uh, just a bit of foreshadowing there. Um, <laughs> the friends who this novel opens up on, Sid and Dee, often talk to one another about baseball. Sid is a fan of the Brooklyn Dodgers, and Dee is a fan of the Philadelphia Athletics. The first baseball player's name that comes up in this book is Hank 
Greenberg. Yeah. Who is Hank Greenberg, and why is he the first baseball player mentioned by name in your new novel, Allies? Sure. Hank Greenberg uh, was uh, pretty famously a, a really big Jewish player, and um, he was great. Uh, he was this big, I mean, like when I say big, I mean, the dude was just enormous. He's just huge guy and uh, was one of the earliest Jewish heroes in terms of athletics. There had been others and there would be more, obviously. But but Hank Greenberg was one of the first uh, like openly and, and famously Jewish players. And it was a great way, like I bring him up because I love baseball and I wanted to have those characters have a connection about baseball. But also one of the characters, Sid Jacobstein, is Jewish. He really respects Hank Greenberg as a player. And um, this was a time when, of course, the world was looking at the Jews as scapegoats. Uh, Nazi Germany, uh, very famously, of course, considered them to be um, the reason that, that they had uh, suffered so much and that the world had suffered so much and was creating concentration camps and exterminating Jewish people. Um, and in the United States, even though we weren't, we, we certainly didn't, we weren't anti-Semitic to that level, but there was still really strong anti-Semitism in the United States. There were certainly people who agreed with Nazi Germany, but even those people who didn't agree with, with how extreme Nazi Germany was, um, they would have elite country clubs where Jews weren't allowed. They would have uh, restaurants or, or, or movie theaters where Jews weren't allowed. Uh, Jewish people were still seen as very second class by many people. Um, and they were, they, they were a minority that, was, that, that suffered persecution and, 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 and prejudice. And Hank Greenberg was this guy who, many, like, like Jackie Robinson many years later, came along and, and, and showed people, like, I'm Jewish and I'm a regular guy. I, I play baseball. Um, I'm just like you. And I may take off religious holidays the way Sandy Koufax did. Sandy Koufax famously um, didn't play one day of the World Series um, because I think it uh, did it fall during... Yom Kippur. I can't remember. Uh, I think I think that was the that was the the, day, the thing that happened. But um, but it, it, he was a role model, and he was an example, and he was a person who said, "I'm just like you. We're, we're just regular folks." And so I made a point of bringing up Hank Greenberg because part of what I'm getting at in this book is the way that um, many many people served at D-Day. Many people who uh, later came home to find that they were still suffering from prejudice and persecution. Uh, African-American medics, um, the, there were, Al, there were uh, Muslim French Algerians in the French resistance who then had to fight a bloody civil war for their own independence in the 1950s to get their independence from France. Uh, women who had uh, served as nurses or as reporters during the war and came back to find the jobs that had been open to them because men were off fighting in World War II now closed to them. Um, so uh, they're, they're, I try to, to pull in many characters. I, I deal with um, one character who comes from a very poor economic background, and uh, he's white, he's English, but he is looked down upon by his uh, fellow uh, soldiers in a tank because he's poor. He comes from a poor working-class family, and they kind of give him some crap for that. So um, I tried to show that there were people from all walks of life who had fought and served who then came home to find that the freedom that they had fought for maybe didn't always qualify. They, they didn't always qualify for it. Maybe it didn't always um, count for them.
Thank you so much, Alan. Um, we learned very early on that D is a German. Uh, his real name is Dietrich Zimmermann. Um, what happened to his family when they lived in Germany? Yeah, so D and his family were political dissidents, and this is something I think that isn't often talked about in um, in books. We we get characters who are. Um, like my characters in Refugee and in Joseph's family who are Jewish and driven from their homes because of their religion. Uh, we get people who are driven from their homes or, or are persecuted because of their race. Um, but politics is also a reason that people become refugees. Um, I do cover that in Refugee. One of those three families, Isabel's father, you could really count as a political dissident. He is fighting against the government. He shares the same race and the same religion, so to speak, uh, this, but the same background as the people who are trying to throw him in jail, but he disagrees with them politically. And um, one of the big reasons that people are thrown in jail around the country, around the world, rather, um, and uh, who suffer persecution is because they disagree with their dictatorial leaders. And um, so in in the case of D and his family, his parents um, resisted the Nazis. They were they were at least politically against the Nazis. Uh, he had an uncle who was a labor leader uh, who was trying to unionize. The Nazis uh, very quickly shut down all labor unions and uh, threw any labor leaders in jail, uh, made them disappear. He's had an uncle who disappeared um, into what the Nazis called the night and fog, or, or not the Nazis, rather, the people who lived in Germany called it disappearing into the night and fog. Um, it was this mysterious way that people would just be taken from their homes at night and Nobody knew where they were, or if if they'd been taken, did they just disappear? Um, they they suspected they'd been taken by the Nazis, and this is what made it even more frightening than like a police wagon driving up in front of their home and kicking their door down. If you were a political dissident, you just disappeared, and it was very frightening. So his family watches as his uncle disappears, and they think, well, we could easily be next. And so they sneak out of Germany before World War II. This is before. Uh, but 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 after Nazi the Nazis have taken over in Germany and um, make their way to the United States as political dissidents and I wanted to to remind people that some people come here um, as political dissidents they've they've come here because we are a place that values freedom of speech we are a place where you can disagree with your government and not be thrown in jail and they come here for safety for their families and now D who is not really a U.S. citizen has joined the United States Army to fight and to go back to Germany, the nation of his birth, to try and drive the Nazis out, to do what he thinks his parents maybe should have done. He feels a little guilty that they ran. Um, He understands, in a way, uh, that if they stayed, they would die. Uh, They could die. Um, But he also feels like maybe if we and everybody else had stood up and said no to the Nazis, we wouldn't be in this position to where I'm having to go back and invade France to drive them out now. Thank you so much. Um, And then we soon jump to Operation Tortoise, and uh, forgive me if I'm butchering the um, pronunciation, Samira Zidane, a French girl, and of course I associate the name Zidane with France in a different context uh, (laughs) in the 2000s. Can you tell us about Operation Tortoise? Sure. So Operation Tortoise was the real code name for, uh, well, one of the code names that was used by the French resistance uh, for their objectives. The French resistance had a lot of different jobs. Um, all through the war, they were working to sabotage 
the, the German occupation. They were um, attacking German soldiers, but more often they were cutting phone lines or they were um, letting air out of tires or they were sometimes the, the people who worked uh, the railways, they couldn't always wreck the trains. That was too obvious. So they would just slow things down. You know, they would they would say, oh, this train needs some work or or they would just, you know, not fill everything up with as much coal or as much fuel as it needed. Um, and it would have to stop. And the Nazis would get really angry and say, oh, you're doing this on purpose. They say, no, no, we just made a mistake. I'm sorry. And um, the great thing was that they were they were working to just frustrate the Nazis as much as they could. And Operation Tortoise was this larger plan to to frustrate the Nazis like that. And then specifically on D-Day to try and disrupt as much of the German infrastructure as they could. So Operation Tortoise included um, spiking roads with nails and spikes so that as the Germans drove their cars down it, their tires would puncture and they wouldn't be able to get communications from one place to another or soldiers from one place to another. They clipped telephone lines and telegraph lines so that when the soldiers hit the beaches that the uh, the, the Nazis couldn't send reinforcements or couldn't call for reinforcements as quickly. Um, they, the biggest thing they did, too, was to derail trains and to blow up train tracks and bridges and, and blow up tunnels or trains in tunnels, which would really snarl things. Um, the Nazis were fighting. They, they knew that the, the, the Allies were, trying, were going to invade in the West. They didn't leave France un, undefended, but they were fighting a huge battle in the East, and they were really pouring most of their resources against the Soviet Union. What they planned to do was move a lot of those resources back West if the Allies did invade France. And... Um, the, the, the French resistance was so good at disrupting uh, the, the German travel within France that it took the Germans as long to move tanks from the border of the war in Russia all the way to the French border, which is all the way across Europe, as it did to move them from the border of France to Normandy, which is a much shorter trip. But it took the same exact amount of time because the French inside France were doing so much to slow things down. Uh, Operation Tortoise is one of my favorite title, uh, favorite uh, operation names. Oftentimes, the Allies gave nonsensical names to stuff. Um, Operation Overlord is the whole name for the overall D-Day invasion. Um, you know, Operation Iceberg was the invasion, uh, or was the Battle of Okinawa. So they would just pick sometimes very nonsensical names. Operation Paperclip was the one to go in and get these uh, Nazi scientists out of Germany right at the end of the war. But I love Operation Tortoise because it it kind of is what it is. Let's slow things down, right? Let's get things down to a turtle speed for the for the Nazis. And that was the big that was the that was really the first thing that happened. So if we go back in time from from the invasion itself around 6:30 or 7:30 in the morning to midnight on June 6, 1944, this is when Operation Tortoise kicks in. Um, the BBC radio sent out the code words, the dice are on the carpet, it's hot in the Suez, and that was the, that was the signal to the French resistance, begin Operation Tortoise, slow everything down, stop the Nazis from getting reinforcements because we're coming. Once again, I would like to thank Alan Gratz for joining me. Signed copies of Allies can be purchased in-store at Quail Ridge Books and online at www.quailridgebooks.com while supplies last. Our sponsor is Libro.fm Audiobooks. Please go to Libro.fm and enter the promo code BOOKIN, that's B-O-O-K-I-N, in the promo code space to get three months of audiobooks for the price of one and support your favorite local independent bookstore in the process. 
My name is Jason Jeffries, and this has been Booking.